0: Now you'll notice you don't have any blanks to fill in tonight, and there's a reason for that. I want to I give a disclaimer at the beginning of tonight, okay? Tonight's is probably going to be the most difficult and involved we've had so far in the book of Daniel, okay? And so I wanted you listening, and I wanted you to have something in full to go along with. Okay. Uh, I'll try to make it simple, but if we really dig into Daniel tonight and look at chapter seven in depth, uh, it's hard to make it more simple than all I have. <laughs> okay. So uh, just hang in there with me tonight. Okay. Do I have two? Huh? Interesting. Okay. If you give them one, they got a one of them. Just the, was the front, another one right here. Okay. Good. Okay. Got it. Great. Right. <laughs> okay. Let's uh, let's go ahead and read the chapter in its entirety. Okay. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream in visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one like a bear, was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, And it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back, and the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful, and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth, that devoured and broke in pieces, and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. As I looked, thrones were placed... And the Ancient of days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him. And 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying, with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet, and about the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn that came up, and before which three of them fell. The horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. Until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns out of this kingdom, ten kings shall arise, and another shall rise after them. He shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, And shall think to change the times and the law. And they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away, and be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all kingdoms shall serve and obey them. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me. And my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. Now here's where I step aside, and Cordell's going to come and teach the lesson tonight. Cordell? <laughs> I'm, I'm kidding. Good. I need half a day. Half a day. <laughs> Now, as we entered chapter 7 last week, we turned a very significant corner in the book. It was the beginning of the, or it is the beginning of the main prophetic section of the book. Uh, We saw this beginning in Daniel chapter 2, but nowhere near the extent that we're going to see in chapters 7 through 12. Now, one interpreter of Daniel makes a point that we need to understand. We need to imagine we're watching a movie on on a big screen. And what Daniel is seeing here is symbols, and we need to see these symbols. We need to picture these symbols in our minds. And and what we need to imagine or see is these four hideous beasts coming up out of the sea of humanity. And we need to picture them one right after another. And as one comes up, it defeats the beast that preceded it. And then it comes into prominence itself before it's defeated. Uh, You know, it's a scene that's sort of easy to visualize. And it's, you know, to communicate in symbols like this can be a very effective way to communicate. And it's very common For the genre of literature known as apocalyptic literature. And so as Daniel is dreaming, he's seeing these four beasts. Let's spend a moment, just a moment, reviewing from last week. Remember I said last week that we can lay Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 alongside of one another. They speak of the same kingdoms. Daniel 2, I said... Uh, probably as looking at these kingdoms from man 's perspective, because man looks at these kingdoms and sees this marvelous statue that's just dazzling in all these metals. as God looks at these same kingdoms, the kingdoms of mankind, he sees hideous beast. Now the thing you're going to notice is the sheer accuracy of Daniel 7 with recorded history. In fact, the details of this vision are so accurate that some critics of the Bible uh, who deny prophecy would try to tell us there's no way Daniel could have written all of this back in the 6th century BC. They say he had to be living after these events and he was writing as a historian looking backwards rather than a prophet looking forwards. And they try to say he must have lived in the 2nd century B.C. uh, after the Babylonian Empire had fallen, after the Medo-Persian Empire had fallen, uh, after the Greek Empire had fallen, right down to the Roman Empire. And that's the only way he could have written with such accuracy. Uh, By the way, that's probably the predominant way that scholars interpret the book of Daniel as a late book uh, rather than an earlier book. Now again, the main reason they say this is because of the preciseness of the prophecy that we see here. They also say the same thing about other prophets. Let's think a moment about Isaiah. Isaiah not only prophesied about the Assyrian invasion of the northern kingdom, but he also wrote about the Babylonian exile of the southern kingdom. Uh, And Isaiah had said, you'll you'll remember from that book, that uh, the Persian conqueror by the name of Cyrus would be the one to issue the decree that the Jews could leave Babylon and go back home. And sure enough, it was Cyrus who issued the decree that they could go back home. Critics would say there's no way a prophet could have even known the name of the king who would let the Jews go home. Well, my response to that would be that while the prophet himself couldn't have known, the God who inspired the prophet could know uh, if you reject Daniel as a legitimate 6th century B.C. prophet you have to say that all of the historical references in the book of Daniel are basically a lie and c- because again Daniel is, is um, claiming to speak of the future when in reality he's speaking of the past if he's a historian rather than a prophet. You with me? That makes sense. If you say that Daniel was only a second century historian, you're also going to have some problems with the Lord Jesus. Because what did Jesus say about Daniel in Matthew 24? Jesus called Daniel a prophet. Not a historian, but a prophet. More, if you call Daniel a mere historian you still can't get around the fact that there's some future prophecies because the book of Daniel is going to speak of things that are still future for us even from our vantage point today so even those who try to say he's a second century historian still have to admit that there's prophecy in this book Now folks, I hope you don't have trouble believing that God can predict things before they happen. I hope you don't have trouble believing that God can inspire men uh, to write things that men don't even know about yet. I hope your picture is of a big God, a sovereign God, who's actually in control of history. History is his story. Well... Let's get on with chapter 7 for a moment. The first thing I want you to see with me tonight, back from verses 1 to 8, again, a little bit of review from last week, is the kingdoms of this world. That's what he's talking about here in these verses. Uh, remember the animals and who they stood for? I'm going to go over them again in a moment. And. Uh, Remember what I said about the two main views, the Greek view and the Roman view of how scholars interpret the book? Uh, According to both the Greek and the Roman view, they both say that uh, Babylon is the head of gold or the lion, right? They both agree on the first kingdom. Now, how do they differ when they come to the second kingdom? Do you remember? The Roman view, the traditional Roman view, says the second kingdom is the Medo-Persians. Okay? Uh, what does the Greek view say? They split it, right? That the second kingdom would be the Medes. And so if you say the second kingdom's the Medes, then you've got to make The third kingdom, the Persians, which would mean you got to make the fourth kingdom, Greece. But the Roman view, the traditional view, again, the second kingdom would be Medo-Persians. Third kingdom would be Greece. Fourth kingdom would be Rome. Exactly. Good, class. (laughs) Give yourself an A so far. But... Now before we go over this more I do want to present you with yet another way of looking at the book of Daniel and I don't have to admit it is a very attractive way of looking at the book of Daniel It's, uh, it's the way if if you read uh, two two key commentators on Daniel Tremper Longman, Tremper Longman and Ian Both of these are two of the main scholars on the book of Daniel. And they would adhere to this other approach that I want to lay out for you. And again, I I find it very attractive uh, in some ways. They tell us it is perhaps a mistake to go with either the Greek view or the Roman view. But neither way is the way we're to look at the book of Daniel. They believe what is being communicated here is that after the Babylonian kingdom there will be a host of other worldly kingdoms which will all be destroyed up to the end of this current age. They'll all be destroyed up to the end of this current age when Christ comes and inaugurates the new age. That it's not just four, and and they'll all be destroyed. They believe the four kingdoms stand for, for all the kingdoms of the world, whether it's four or forty. And they cite how oftentimes in Scripture, four is a number of completion in the Bible... And so these kingdoms represent all the kingdoms of the world until this age ends and Christ comes to establish his eternal kingdom. But until then, they say the kingdoms of this world will grow more hideous, more violent, And the one that follows will oftentimes seem more vile than the kingdom it replaced. And as they point out, the saints learn through this that the answer is not in any kingdoms of the world. That it will not be until the coming of the Son of Man that wrong is made right and the saints dwell finally in righteousness and peace. There's not a single kingdom of this world that we can put our hope in. Now, interpreters who view Daniel this way actually claim that we do apocalyptic literature a disservice when we insist on plugging in historical figures because we're going beyond what the text itself says. And there's always a danger in doing that. An example would be what the church has done down through the years with the identity of the Antichrist. We know Antichrist is coming, but the Bible doesn't tell us exactly who he's going to be. And the church down through the ages has said that the Antichrist was Napoleon. Some have said, no, he's not Napoleon, he's Hitler. No, he's not Hitler. He's Mussolini. Or he is Barney the dinosaur, the little kids figure. I'm ser- I'm damn serious in that. Some of you parents, do you remember Barney? Oh my my daughter loved watching Barney the dinosaur. Remember the purple uh, dinosaur? He's even been accused of being the Antichrist. I'm serious because if you convert Barney the Dinosaur into Latin and then add up all the letters in the name, it comes out to be 666. And so they say, oh, the Antichrist is Barney the Dinosaur. That's not a joke. (laughs) Some have said uh, John Kennedy, Richard Nixon, Ronald Reagan, Henry Kissinger, Bill Gates, or Barack Obama. All of these people have been named as the Antichrist. I don't see any of them listed in the Bible. <laughs> and that's, that's, that's the issue there. They're not listed. The Antichrist is not identified. And these scholars say, likewise, these kingdoms, at least the second kingdom the third kingdom and the fourth kingdom are not identified. The first is Babylon, and the fifth is, which is the kingdom of Christ. And so again, they would tell us that we need to look at these four kingdoms of the earth that Daniel sees as a symbol for all of the kingdoms of of this age leading down to when Christ comes. And that all kingdoms of man are going to be corrupt and vile and violent. And we aren't to put our trust in any of them. Our trust is to be in that fifth kingdom when Christ comes. Well, with that said though, let me go back and uh, talk a minute about the traditional view, the Roman view, uh, after I've just told you that that's perhaps not the way we're to look at it. <laughs> But anyway, again, the lion with the eagle's wings has been identified as, as Babylon. Uh, the bear was identified has been identified as probably referencing the Medo-Persian Empire. Uh, the bear is large. It's not as swift as the lion. And that's how the Medo-Persian Empire did things. Huge force. They weren't as fast. Huge force. And it was raised up... On one side, this bear image showing Persian dominance over the Medes. The three ribs in its mouth, scholars feel like this might be a reference to the three kingdoms that the Myrda, uh, Medo-Persian Empire conquered. Babylon, 539 BC, they, they conquered Babylon. Then Lydia in 546 BC, and then Egypt in 525 BC. And then the third kingdom, represented by the leopard, would be Greece. Uh, the four-winged leopard represents Greece with its swiftness and conquest under Alexander the Great, who was born in 356 BC. He ruled from Europe to Africa to India. I have read that he conquered kingdoms faster than anybody had been known to in all of history. Uh, Then when he died at the age of 32, uh, four of his generals, hence the four-headed leopard, Ptolemy uh, was one of his generals who ruled over Egypt and Palestine. Uh, Seleucus took Syria, Babylon, and much of the Middle East. Cassander took Greece and Macedonia, and Lysimachus ruled Asia Minor. These were four generals of Alexander that when he died, they assumed power over four respective areas. And then the terrible beast, Rome. Such a terrible beast that Daniel doesn't even give an animal that we know to describe it. He simply says it was a terrible animal with iron teeth. Now, at the end of verse 7, we're also shot into the future for nothing up until this time corresponds to what we see here. Uh, we're told that uh, it devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. Ten horns, sign of power and of government. So a kingdom whose power is split into ten sections with ten rulers. Then we see in verse A there was another horn, in other words, an eleven, a little horn. Seems insignificant at first, and then this little horn becomes dominant, and he uproots three of the others. Now this would be a picture we believe, perhaps, of who? Of the Antichrist. Yes. Now some would ask if this couldn't be a picture of Antiochus Epiphanes IV who was a very wicked Syrian ruler and he opposed the Jews during the days between the Old and New Testament. If you follow the Greek view where Greece is the fourth kingdom then yes, you would say this little horn right here. uh, is a picture of Antiochus. In the Roman view, remember, Antiochus, though, was a part of the third kingdom under the Roman view. You with me? Uh, He came to power after Alexander died, after Alexander's kingdom had been divided among his four generals. Uh, One of his generals was a man by the name of Seleucus who took the area of Syria. And it was from this area that Antiochus rose to power. He was a Syrian. But under the traditional Roman view of interpreting the book of Daniel, the little horn here in chapter 7 is not a part of the third kingdom, but a part of the fourth kingdom. Now, we're going to see this in great detail in chapter 8. There's a little horn in chapter 8 that will stand for Antiochus. Are you confused? The little horn in chapter 7 probably refers to the coming Antichrist. In chapter 8, the little horn is going to stand for Antiochus. In chapter 8, we're going to see a ram standing for the Medo-Persian Empire. Then we see a goat moving against the ram, defeating the ram. And at the zenith of the goat's power, its horn was broken and four horns came up in its place. Once again, that can be compared to the leopard in chapter 7 with four heads. Alexander died and his kingdom being split among his four generals. And then in chapter 8, verse 9, we see a little horn that came up out of the four. And This would have been Antiochus. And later on in verses 9 to 14 of chapter 8, we're going to see about Antiochus' reign of terror. And so what I'm getting at is we have two separate pictures of the little horn between chapter 7 and chapter 8. Apparently the little horn doesn't refer to the same person. Remember that for test time. Now, hang on, because at the end, we're going to make some applications for all of us today, okay? So if you're sitting there and your head's spinning, just just hang on with me tonight, okay? Uh, Secondly, tonight I want you to see a glimpse at God's rule and the ultimate end to the kingdoms of the world, beginning there in verse 9. While Daniel's dream and vision has thus far been concerned with the earth, in verse 9, the focus is going to shift. And so, picture our movie screen again, our large TV, okay? We have the lower part of the screen, with all the fighting and the conquering and the boasting going on, symbolizing all the kingdoms of this world. The bottom half of the screen. Now we're going to have the top half of the screen. Daniel says, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was... Fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. The rendering I beheld till the thrones were cast down, as some say can be translated. I beheld till thrones were set up or put in place. If we go with thrones cast down, it means that Daniel saw his vision of the earthly empires until they all ran out of uh, of time and God judged all of them. If we go with thrones put in place, it could mean that the heavenly judgment hall is being set up. But who is it that we see here? The Ancient of Days. Who's this a reference to? God. He's timeless. He's eternal. Garment white as snow. Purity. Hair like uh, pure wool. Wisdom. Throne was a fiery flame. Fire, a picture of judgment, oftentimes in the Word of God. Its wheels, a burning fire. Mobility. God can go anywhere at any time to judge any place in the world. He's not confined. And look at verse 10. We see this image of majesty. This, this, the majesty of God. A thousand, thousands serving him. Folks, we see the heavenly beings being seated here and books being opened. God keeps records. Moses knew that God had a library. He mentions it in exodus thirty two he says, "Lord, these people have committed a great sin and have made for themselves a God of gold. Yet now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, I pray, blot me out of your book that you have written.
1: Then in Malachi
0: three again, the Bible mentions a book of remembrance for those who fear God and also the great white throne judgment of Revelation 20. It says when the books were opened. What does that show us? That God's judgment is not arbitrary. Records are kept not because God needs them kept for His sake, but so those who are about to be condemned might face the record of of their own actions and words and deeds. The Bible speaks of judgment quite frequently. Folks, each of us has a day in court. We have an appointment before the Ancient of Days. Every one of us. And you know what? We're providing materials and evidence now for the day of the appointment of our lives. Every thought, action, word, and motive is going to be material for that judgment. But praise God, Romans 8, 1 tells us what? There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He's taken the judgment for us. Amen? Well, in verse 11, it would seem that we're back on the bottom of the screen. At the height of the power and arrogance of the Antichrist, he struck down. Where do we see that in the New Testament? We see it in Revelation 19, right? Now, <clears throat> verse 12. Look at verse 12. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Uh, this verse is commonly interpreted almost as a footnote to the overall picture here. And the explanation goes something like this. While at the end of time the Lord is going to swiftly and decisively destroy the Antichrist, this is not how the other kingdoms came to an end. While God allowed another kingdom to conquer them, they weren't destroyed totally, but they were rather amalgamated into the kingdom that took them over. And that could explain why when we come to Revelation 13 verse 2 we see that there's a vestige or a remnant of all the previous kingdoms in the last earthly kingdom. Now in verses 13 and 14 we're back in heaven again. And in a very decisive way the fifth kingdom The stone of Daniel 2 smashes all the earthly kingdoms. Daniel says, I saw in the night vision and behold with the clouds of heaven... There came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory in a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Folks, this too corresponds with Revelation 19. When the Lord and the saints come, the Antichrist and all who follow him are destroyed. And what happens? The Lord sets up his rule, which is eternal. The kingdom of Christ is universal and everlasting. It's universal because it's not just made up of one people, but all peoples who have come to faith in Christ. It's everlasting because all these other kingdoms of the world come to pass. They're gone now. We've seen one after another come and go. One kingdom is defeated by another. All the kingdoms of this world are temporary, but by contrast, when Jesus Christ comes and he sets up his kingdom, it is going to be everlasting forever and forever. And that's what we see here in verses 13 and 14. Now... In verses 15 and following, we see thirdly, God judges the kingdoms of this world, and the saints reign with the Son of Man. We're told in verse 15 that Daniel was grieved in the spirit, the visions of his head troubled him. Why is he so troubled? Why is he disturbed? I mean, the way the vision ends, one would think he'd be quite happy to learn that the kingdom of God is finally in control. What could explain him being troubled? Well, a couple of things perhaps. We know from reading Scripture the Jews hoped for the messianic rule of the Messiah. It was a longing in their hearts, right? Even on Palm Sunday when Jesus rode into Jerusalem what they think was going to happen next. He's going to defeat the Romans, set up his everlasting kingdom. When it didn't happen that way, what were the crowds saying at the end of the week? Crucifying. You see, they failed to see that the Messiah would come in two advents. The first would be as a suffering servant. The second as a conquering king. Because of that confusion, they rejected Christ. Uh, as Daniel listened to this vision of the four beasts, he must have realized that that the longed-for Messianic kingdom he was hoping for was going to be delayed. But now it becomes clear to Daniel that after the Babylonian Empire, the Messianic kingdom is not going to be established. In fact, after the Babylonians, it's going to be the Medo-Persian, then the Greeks, then the Romans. And so Daniel realizes that Messiah's kingdom was not something he was going to see in his lifetime. That could explain why he's troubled. A second reason is because he realizes from the vision of the four four beasts how violent the coming kingdoms of the earth are going to be. And this is going to mean that God's people are going to be suffering for a long, long time. He's seeing here things are not going to be wrapped up quickly. History is going to go on for a long time with kingdoms of man. Uh, And these kingdoms, vile and violent and corrupt, and God's people are going to have many, many years of suffering before God finally wraps things up. So maybe that's why Daniel's great. Verse 16, he walks over to the one who stood nearby. This is one of the heavenly beings. Uh, Evidently, his purpose in hanging around Daniel was so that he could interpret. Daniel's vision, be sort of like a Bible teacher to Daniel. Showing what? That God wants His people to know. God wants His people to know. He wants us to be encouraged. That He wins and we win. Right? Even if it might take a long time in history to play out. God's saints will be vindicated. Verse 16, the angel's guided tour ensues, and he moves quickly. In verse 17, he speeds through these four kingdoms again quickly. Verse 18, he speeds through this quickly. Uh, This appears to be the focus. The saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. That's the real focus of what he wants Daniel to understand. Verse 19, he slows down the guided tour. He expre- uh, Dan- Daniel slows it down because he's curious about the fourth kingdom. He tells the angel in verses 19 to 22 what it is that he saw. And in verse 23, the angel begins to interpret. Right? Now folks, here again in this interpretation, what are we going to see? We're going to see a description of the Antichrist that's going to be yet future. And we're told some things about him in Scripture. We're going to be told he has a fierce countenance. In 2 Thessalonians, Paul's going to refer to him as the man of sin. The son of perdition, also the lawless one. In Revelation 13, he is referred to as the first beast. And in Daniel 7, verse 20 and 24, at the end of the verse, it says he's going to be powerful and he's going to be proud. He's going to be a smooth talker. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 2, The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure and unrighteousness. He'll be powerful, he'll be proud, and people will follow him. Why will people follow him? Because he'll be backed by the power of Satan. And on top of that, God is going to send people a deluding influence. People who would not believe God's truth. God's going to grease the sliding board in the direction they want to go and God's going to send them a diluting influence. Right? Jesus says He's not only going to be powerful and proud, but in Matthew 24, Jesus talks about the fact that He's going to send persecutions. Daniel 7.25 also indicates that he's going to intend to change times and the law. Daniel says here the saints will be persecuted for a set period of time, times, times, half a time. But then, what's he do? He gives the good news, right? He gives the good news. The kingdom and the dominion, verse 27 says, and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all kingdoms shall serve and obey them. What are we waiting for? Paul in Titus 2 says we're waiting for this. The blessed hope of the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now again, I know some of you are lost in the weeds of all these kingdoms and this little horn and the antichrist and all that's going on. But again, what is it that you need to see in chapter 7? All of these kingdoms of the world are going to come and go. They're going to be there and the saints of God are going to suffer in each one. And the saints of God are going to have to endure a lot of bad stuff for a really long time. But in the end, it's all going to come crashing down because Jesus is coming back and he's going to set up his kingdom and then the saints of God are gonna receive the promise that's been given to us all along, Amen. and we're gonna be with the Lord forever and ever and ever. Amen. That's that's sort of the ten thousand foot view looking down at chapter seven Amen. without <laughs> getting down into all the wings. Makes sense, Amen. at least that part. Well, some lessons. Difficult times will only increase. Folks, what are we to expect? We are to expect more spiritual counterfeits. There's going to be more bloodshed among the nations. There's going to be hostilities against Christians. Do you realize in the 20th century more Christians were martyred for the sake of Christ than all 19 previous centuries combined? We don't hear about that much in America. I mean, we think back to the early days of Christianity and how the Romans were killing them and feeding them through the lions and all the bad stuff. We think, thank goodness that's not man's experience today. It is man's experience today. There have been more martyrs for the gospel in the 20th century than in century 1 to 19 combined. And that's going to go on to the end. To Christ comes back. And so what's it show us? We must not trust the kingdoms of this world. We need to be warned already of the spirit of Antichrist. As John says uh, in 1 John, that there's already many Antichrists out there. The spirit of Antichrist is alive and well. But we need to be reminded that God is in control. And we need to realize that even the worst form of evil, such as that that's going to be promoted by the Antichrist, is going to be judged. And so folks, don't grow discouraged when you see the world thing today. Be encouraged by the fact that evil will not be allowed to run rampant forever. In a swift moment of judgment and destruction, God's going to do away with all who oppose Him. Every world system that opposes God, every person who opposes God will be defeated. Mm -hmm. What do you need to be worried about? You need to worry about, are you ready for your appointment with God? Do you know Christ? You have an appointment with the Ancient of Days. Are you saved? If you're in Christ, you're saved. And again, as I said earlier tonight, He's taken the judgment for you. You don't have to live in fear. But you do have to wait in the meantime. And you might suffer. And your family might suffer. Who knows what might be ahead for any one of us? You might have to suffer. Who knows what might come to the West? You might be called one day to give your life for the sake of the gospel. And are you prepared for that? Again, though, be encouraged. He's got it all in His hands. Don't ever buy into this that if you're faithful enough and have enough faith, you know, and you're strong enough in your faith, nothing bad's ever going to happen to you. We see some of that in charismatic circles, right? Oh, if you just have enough faith. you know, God's going to bless you with prosperity and abundance and good health and you're not going to have trouble in the world. Who says so? The Bible doesn't say so. Job was the most righteous man of the east and he suffered like nobody had ever suffered before. The saints of God always (coughs) suffered. You might have to suffer. But remember, this world is not your home. We're members now of the kingdoms of of this age, but we're looking for the kingdom that's going to destroy the kingdoms of this age. Mm -hmm. We're to be like Abraham, looking for the city whose builder and maker is God. Mm -hmm. Be strong and be prepared. And we'll end chapter 7 tonight on that note. In questions, the heartbreaky thing for me is there's
1: so many that don't know, him. sure, they don't know him. Yeah. and we are accountable to share. Sure,
0: yeah, and so many that have turned away from the truth and will believe the lie. They'll believe the strong delusion because they've rejected God's truth. Yep. Mm -hmm. the tribute part of the tribulation depending on how you interpret however you interpret the tribulation whether it's ongoing or whether it's a definite set period of time like seven years uh, either way yes it describes it describes part of the tribulation that the saints of God will go through yes does that mean that we can kind of judge that Jesus is not going to come right now because all this so much has not come to pass because I'm always hopeful that he comes no. sure well I mean we assume that things aren't taking place but often, we don't look at things the way God sees things Uh. I don't know of a great deal that would prevent him from coming, son. Really, quite frankly, as I read the scripture, I mean that's a hope that many of us live with. That hope that Jesus will come. Sure. So our little grandchildren won't be exposed to all this mess in the world, you know. Sure, but remember what Jesus said: that in this world you will have tribulation. Mm-hmm. We don't want to go through it. We don't want our loved ones to encounter it. But we might, and they might. So, Where, where are we in the stage of tribulation before he comes? Only God knows. There's a lot of preachers that know. <laughs> mm-hmm. Or they pretend to. Yeah. Right.
1: You had a comment. Yeah, I'm trying to piece everything together. Your, your little plot twist at the beginning mm-hmm. with the two authors that have a different perspective. Right. It's very intriguing to me because I could see where prophetically even Jesus talked in parables. Right. So why would God not do that with stories of the Old Testament in line with representing kingdoms of, of our days or of their days that they would have known about, that right. they could wrap their head around. We can't wrap our head around the ancient towns of Babylon right. and Rome. But we can wrap our heads around the Chinas, mm-hmm. the Russia, the U.S., mm-hmm. things of that nature. So I understand why they may think that it's kingdoms what would never end until the fifth kingdom established.
0: Mm-hmm. Right.
1: So I understand that, and it's very entertaining, very, not entertaining, it's very enlightening. If okay. you can Okay. Um, what I worry about, and what hurts my heart, is what you said at the very end, in the deception. Yeah. How many churches, regardless of denominations, are going are not teaching what you're teaching today or on a Sunday? Sure. How many of them are doing this love felt, heartwarming? Everybody's going to get along. We have faith. All this other stuff. And they're not getting the other side of God's character. Yeah. And that side of God's character, they will see at their day of judgment. Yeah. And they're not going to know who they're, who they're facing. Because they don't know that personal God. My children know me on my good days, and my children know me on my bad days. They know when they're being corrected, and they know when they're being praised. God expects us to do the same thing. To see him in his anger, and his unfortunate nature. As well as in his kind and giving and loving nature. Sure. But how many churches are going to fall short of that? Yeah. And and people think they're living on comfort of going to heaven and they're not.
0: See, the problem you're talking about, theologians refer to it as the simplicity of, of God. Mm-hmm. Now, they don't mean simplicity like we mean it. We tend to think of that term in negative <coughs> aspects. But what they mean by that is people tend to pull out only one attribute of God and run with that to the exclusion of the others. And they end up with a false representation in their mind of who God is. We need to see God in all of His attributes. A lot of these churches you're talking about We'll just say, "Oh, it's it's just all about love. God's mm-hmm. love. That's that's all God. Is. He's just love." Well, yeah, He is love. First John four seven says, "God is love." But there's actually more spoken in the Bible about the wrath of God than the love of God. Yeah, and God is jealous for His people. So we need to see God in all of His attributes rather than just pulling out one and running with that. And it would be my prayer that these churches that are just running with one, they would start preaching and teaching the whole counsel of God so they could see all of the attributes of God uh, because they're just being given one little piece of the pie.
1: But I think that the condition of, the, of people today don't want to be held accountable for right. their actions. Exactly. And that probably is, that's probably thousands of years of like that. Sure. but for some reason today, with the media and with the technology that we have, it's even more profound yeah. that nobody wants to be accountable for who they are in their own actions. Sure. Therefore, preachers don't want to lose their, their money-generating... Congregation, sure. to to
0: keep their church and to, and to boast and, and be powerful yeah. of the church that they have, and and some of these churches when they talk about love and emphasize only that they want to talk about you know Jesus being the perfect example of that which he was, but here again they need to understand Jesus spoke about judgment mm-hmm. and coming judgment. Look at the parable of the dragnet, where nets cast out and. Dragged to the shore and all kind of and some are cast away and some are kept. And Jesus talking about the wheat and the tears and separation made at the end of the age and some being burned in eternal fire. You know, they like to appeal to Jesus only being a person of love, but they need to see that even He spoke of God's coming wrath and judgment. But anyway, what's the answer? What The answer is to make sure we're reading the whole counsel of God and getting the full picture. Okay. Samuel? Real quick question. So Daniel referenced uh, in his vision son of man. Mm-hmm. Jesus used that term for himself yes. several times in the Gospels. Yes. Right? Hey, and his you. rationale in doing that was to kind of fulfill that prophecy and say, here I am. Absolutely. Bridging back to Daniel and what Daniel said about him and identifying with that. Yeah. But don't you love
1: verse 10? I mean, it's just a lot of it. But 13 talks about him being the son of God but he hadn't even come as a baby yeah. in humanity. Sure. And here... The whole picture. You
0: have the whole picture. Right? Yep. Well, just like Micah, Micah 5, that prophesies the birth of Christ. And even tells where he would be born ahead of time. And which? Bethlehem. uh, The Bethlehem outside of Jerusalem. Not the one up in the north. So prophecy is very specific in the Bible. Yeah.